Welcome to From Cork with Love Adventure, the only programme from Cork, Ireland, in which you can hear what it's like to be Irish in Cork from the point of view of a totally unrepresentative man. This is Paul Amani welcoming you to the latest episode. Is this the best day for what? It's the best kind of day. It's autumn, blue sky with some clouds, warm, not hot, little cooling breeze. I'd call it a candidate for the perfect day to go walking and reading Wanderlust, A History of Walking by Rebecca Solnit. And what better day to start a new chapter in the book than Sunday afternoon? Chapter 7, entitled The Legs of William Wordsworth. And so far we've, we've come through the 18th century. We've come through the 17th and 18th century, and we've even gone back to the Greeks already. And we've gradually listened to Rebecca Solnit's, or come across Rebecca Solnit's perspective of the gradual opening up of the countryside to different forms of enjoyment, walking for its own sake rather than utilitarian walking. Always people have walked from A to B in order to get to market, in order to get to whatever, to get to join the army. Let's see what she has to say about the legs of William Wordsworth. His legs were pointedly condemned by all the female connoisseurs in legs that I ever heard lecture on that topic, wrote Thomas de Quincey of William Wordsworth. With a mixture of admiration and animosity, most of the next generation of poets brought to that looming presence. There was no absolute deformity about them, and undoubtedly they had been serviceable legs beyond the average standard of human requisition. For I calculate upon good data that with these identical legs, Wordsworth must have travelled a distance of 175 to 180,000 English miles a mode of exertion which to him stood in the stead of wine, spirits, and all other stimulants whatsoever, to the animal spirits to which he has been indebted for a life of unclouded happiness, and we for much of what is most excellent in his writings. Wow, I did not know that Wordsworth had walked that much. While others walked before and after him, and many other romantic poets went on walking tours, Wordsworth made walking central to his life and art, to a degree almost unparalleled before or since. He seemed to have gone walking nearly every day of his very long life, and walking was both how he encountered the world and how he composed his poetry. Hmm. To understand his walking... It is important to break away from the idea of the walk 
as meaning a brief stroll about a pleasant place. And from that other definition of the recent writers on romantic walking, of walking as long-distance travel. For Wordsworth, work, walking was a mode, not of travelling, but of being. At 21, he set off on a 2,000-mile journey on foot. But during the last 50 years of his life, he paced back and forth in a small garden terrace to compose his poetry. And both kinds of walking were important to him, as was cruising about the streets of Paris and of London, climbing mountains and walking with sister and friends. All this walking found a way into his poetry. I could have written about his walking earlier, with the philosophical writers who made walking part of their thinking process. Or later, when I turned to the histories of walking in the city, But he himself linked walking with nature, poetry, poverty and vagrancy in a wholly new and compelling way. And of course, Wordsworth himself emphatically valued the rural over the urban. And she quotes poetry. Happy in this that I with nature walked, not having a too early intercourse with the deformities of crowded life. Two... He is the figure to which posterity looks in tracing the history of walking in the landscape. He has become a trailside god. Born in 1770 in Cockermouth, just north of the more wild and steep scenery of the Lake District, Wordsworth liked in later years to portray himself as a simple man born amid a kind of pastoral republic of lakeland freeholders and shepherds. In fact, his father was the agent of Lord Lothar, an immensely wealthy despot who owned much of the region. The future poet was not yet eight when his mother died. Dorothy was sent away to be raised by relatives, and he himself was sent to school in Hawkshead, in the heart of the lakes. The death of their father when Wordsworth was 13, left the children dependent on the goodwill of unenthused relations for Lord Lowther managed to deprive the five Wordsworth children of their legacy from this successful father for nearly 20 years. But the years at Hawkshead's excellent school were idyllic, despite or perhaps because of all the family turmoil. There he set snares, ice-skated, climbed the cliff for bird's eggs, boated and walked incessantly at night and often in the morning before school, when he and a friend would go the five miles around the nearby lake. Or so says the prelude, one of his great long poems. His gra- yes, his great autobiographical poem of several thousand lines which, even with its scrambled chronologies and deleted facts, provides a spectacular portrait of the poet's early life. I must read it. I barely barely glanced at it. But I've never taken it on to read it all. I must do that. Called by his family, the poem to Coleridge, to whom it is addressed, it is also subtitled the growth of a poet's mind, signifying exactly what kind of an autobiog- 
biography it is. And it was meant to be a prelude to a monumental philosophical poem, the recluse of which only the prelude and the excursion were completed. The prelude reads almost as a single long walk that, though interrupted, never altogether stops, and this recurrent image of the walker gives it continuity amid all its digressions and detours. One pictures Wordsworth, like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, or Dante in the Divine Comedy, a small figure touring the whole world on foot. Only this time, round, it is a world of lakes, dances, dreams, books, friendships, and many other places. The poem is also a kind of atlas of the making of the poet, showing us the role of this city and that mountain, for places loom larger than people. In the same respectfully spiteful vein as De Quincey remarking on Wordsworth's legs, the essayist William Hazlitt once quipped, he sees nothing but himself and the universe. Oh, I remember reading Hazlitt. Hazlitt's written on walking tours. We did it at school. In the history of English literature, the rise of the novel is often linked to the rise of awareness and interest about personal life. Personal life as private thoughts, emotions, and relations between people. Wordsworth went much further than the novels of his time in charting his own thoughts, emotions, memories, and relations to place but his seems a curiously impersonal life, since he remains reticent on his personal relationships, thus has its quip. His passion for walking and for landscape seems to have originated in childhood, or been that curiosity so many children have, salvaged and refined into art in his later years. But the passion begins too early and goes too far to be merely the fashionable taste for admiring and describing landscapes. In the fourth of the Prelude's 13 books, he describes walking home from an all-night dance somewhere in the lakes, sometime in his late teens, to witness a dawn, quote, more glorious than I had ever beheld. Early on this morning, while, quote, the sea was lapping at a distance all, the solid mountains were as bright as clouds. He committed to his vocation as a poet. I made no vows, but vows were then made for me. And he became a dedicated spirit. On I walked in blessedness, which even yet remains. In his early twenties, he seems to have set about to systematically fail at every alternative to becoming a poet and chosen wandering and musing as the preliminaries for realizing his vocation. Another piece of poetry. Should the guide I choose be nothing better than a wandering cloud, I cannot miss my way. There's a repetition of the phrase, I wandered lonely as a cloud. Should the guide I choose be nothing better than a wandering cloud, I cannot miss my life. He asserts amid the opening lines of this massive poem, first finished in 1805, revised repeatedly during his lifetime and only published after his death in 1850. At 
turning point in both his life and the prelude is his amazing 1790 walk with his fellow student Robert Jones across France into the Alps when they should have been studying for their Cambridge University exams. Wordsworth's most recent biographer, Kenneth Johnston, dramatically declares, with this act of disobedience, his career as a romantic poet may be said to have begun. Travel has its rogue and rebel aspects, straying, going out of bounds, escaping, but this journey was as much a quest for an alternative identity as an escapade, as an escapade. The grand tour had been a standard feature of English gentlemen's educations. Usually they went by coach to meet people of their own class and see the artworks and monuments of France and Italy. Those connoisseurs of gardens and landscapes, Horace Walpole and Thomas Gray, went on such a tour in 1739 where they each rose excitedly of the Alps they crossed en route to Italy, to go on foot and to make Switzerland rather than Italy the destination of the trip expressed a radical shift in priorities, away from art and aristocracy towards nature and democracy. Oh, there's a great sentence. Away from art and aristocracy towards nature and democracy. I love it. To go in 1790 meant joining the flood of radicals converging on Paris to breathe the heady atmosphere of the early days of the French Revolution before the blood had begun to pour. The Alps themselves, already central objects in the cult of the landscape sublime, were part of the attraction. But so was Switzerland's republican government and its associations with Rousseau their final destination before they boated back down the Rhine was the island of Saint-Pierre, where Rousseau wrote, which Rousseau, Rousseau wrote about in the Confessions and the reveries of a solitary walker as a version of the natural paradise. Rousseau is an obvious precursor to Wordsworth, who walked as both a means and an end to compose and to be. They landed, that's Sir Wordsworth and Johnston. No, not Johnston. Wordsworth and who was his, who was his passion? Who was his, his, uh, his uh, traveling partner? Oh, this is terrible, I'm looking back. Robert Jones, yes. They had landed in Calais on July 13 and woke the next day to the joyous celebrations of the first anniversary of the show when France was, quote, standing on top of golden hours and human nature seeming born again. They walked through, quote, hamlets, towns, gaudy with relics of that festival, flowers left to wither on triumphal arcs and window garlands unhoused beneath the evening star we saw. Dances of Unhoused beneath the evening star, we saw dances of liberty and in late hours of darkness, dances in the open air. Wordsworth and Jones had charted their journey with care, however, and walked about 30 miles a day in order to carry out their ambitious plans. Here's Wordsworth again. 
A march it was of military speed, and earth did change her images and form, before us fast as clouds are changed in heaven. Day after day, up early and down late, from vale to vale, from hill to hill we went, from province unto province did we pass, keen hunters in a chase of fourteen weeks. So vigorous were they that they crossed the Alps without realizing it, much to their disappointment. They crossed the Alps without realizing it. Wow. Already over the final pass and still thinking they had far higher to go, they had cut off an uphill trail when a peasant set them straight and sent them to finish their descent into Italy, where they made a quick loop past Lake Como before re-entering Switzerland. Wordsworth breaks off his narrative at Lake Como, but the prelude recounts his returns to France in 1791, where his politics continued to develop. It is entirely Wordsworthy that he tried to understand the revolution by walking the streets of Paris and visiting, quote, each spot of old and recent fame, from the dust of the Bastille to the Champ de Mars and Montmartre. Among the Britons he may have met there are Colonel John Oswald and Walking Stuart, two examples of a new kind of pedestrian. Johnston writes, Oswald had traveled to India become a vegetarian and nature mystic, walked back to Europe overland, thrown himself into the French Revolution with the direct intent of carrying it back to England. He would later appear under his own surname in Wordsworth's early verse drama, The Borderers. Stuart was a similar character, whose nickname commemorated his remarkable walks. He too had walked back from India as well as all over Europe and North America. Ah, the good fella, the good fella, the good dog. Or appear under his own surname in Wordsworth's early verse drama, The Borderers. Stuart was a similar character whose nickname commemorated his remarkable walks. He too had walked back from India. <coughs> as well as all over Europe and North America, but whose books were diatribes on other subjects. De Quincey wrote of Walking Stuart, no region pervious to human feet, except, I think, China and Japan, visited by Mr. Stuart in this philosophical style, a style which compels a man to move slowly through a country and to fall in continually with the natives of that country. A third eccentric, John Thelwall, mentioned in chapter 2, suggests something of a pattern, autodidacts who took the trinity of radical politics, love of nature and pedestrianism to extremes. Thelwall became well acquainted with Wordsworth and Coleridge in the early 1790s, and later in that decade, after he narrowly escaped hanging for his politics, sought refuge with them. Dog has met two small dogs, and he's coming back good. Wordsworth owned a copy of Thelwall's Peripatetic, which amid its digressions on philosophy 
take stock of the living and working conditions being drawn into the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. These characters suggest that travelling any distance on foot was the act of a political radical in England, expressing an unconventionality and a willingness to identify and be identified with the poor. Wordsworth himself wrote in a letter of 1795, I have some thoughts of exploring the country westward of us in the course of next summer, but in a humble evangelical way, to wit, a pied. And in the prelude he wrote, So like a peasant I pursue my way. To walk in this way summed up Rousseau's complex equation of virtue with simplicity, with childhood, with nature. At the beginning of the 18th century, English aristocrats had linked nature with reason and the current social order, suggesting that things were as they should be. But nature was a dangerous goddess to enthrone. At the latter end of that century, Rousseau and the Romanticism Rousseau and romanticism, romanticism equated nature, feeling and democracy, portraying the social order as highly artificial and making revolt against class privilege only natural. In his history of 18th century ideas of nature, Basil Willey remarks, throughout that turbulent time, nature remained the dominant concept, but its meaning was protean. The revolution was made in the name of nature. Burke attacked it in the name of nature. And in Eodem Nomine, Tom Paine, Mary Wollstonecraft, and radical philosopher William Godwin replied to Burke. To walk in the gracious and expensive confines of the garden was to associate walking, nature, the leisure of classes and the established order that secured that leisure. To walk in the world was to link walking with a nature aligned instead with the poor and whatever radicalism would defend their rights and interests. Two, if society deformed nature, then children and the uneducated were in a radical reversal, the purest and the best. Wordsworth perfect sponge of his age, soaks up these values and pours them forth as his extraordinary poetry of childhood, his own and those of his many fictional characters and of the poor. He took up Rousseau's task and improved upon it, portraying rather than arguing a relationship between childhood nature and democracy though only the first two of this trinity are remembered by the worshippers of the trailside god, the third is central to at least the early work. Quote, you know perhaps already that I am of that odious class of men called Democrats, he wrote a friend in 1794, continuing with a confidence that proved unwarranted, and of that class I shall forever continue. Somewhere on these roads, among these people and these questions, Wordsworth met up with his style. His earliest poetry is lofty, vague, and studded with conventional images, in the mode of Thompson's seasons. But it seemed to be his revolutionary ardour and sympathetic identification with the poor that saved him from being a minor landscape poet. During the same decade of the 1790s, Dorothy's writing undergoes a similar transformation. 
from the aphoristic obtruseness of a Dr. Johnson or Jane Austen to something vividly descriptive and down to earth. It changed both subject matter and style. In his retroactive preface to the lyrical ballads, the epochal book of poems by Wordsworth and Coleridge, published in 1798, he wrote, The principal object, then, proposed in these poems was to choose incidents and situations from common life and to relate or describe them throughout as far as possible in a selection of language really used by men and at the same time to throw over them a certain colouring of imagination. Humble and rustic life was generally chosen because in that condition the essential passions of the heart find a better soil and speak a plainer and more emphatic language. We'll stop there. We'll draw a pause and come back to where I began. In case you're wondering, is page 110 of a book which runs to 280, 290 I'll call it. Let's go back to the car. Let's get into the car. Let's adjourn the walking, eh, Louis? Go on. In you get. Good job. That was from Cork with Love Adventure, sponsored by Nobody. This is your host, Paul Omani, saying I hope it was worth your while listening. Bye for now.